Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello and welcome everyone to All the Things. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And once again, even though it is April Fool's Day, and we fooled you last week by saying we have a show in two weeks. No, actually, we have a show today. And the one and only Monique Dusan is still stashed away in a secret location in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> So where are you? Well, I think we announced last week um, yeah. that I'm at the Childers. Just, you know, hold up here. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Monique Dusan, co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. Thank you for joining us. I just cut you off, Krista. Sorry, we didn't even really get to do this. And we can't take two because I am not there. No, um, that's okay. Helping us on the show tonight is the one and only Bob the bon Bob Bontrager. You know his name. Bob the button pusher Bontrager man you guys you know what I think I'm just tired because there was tornado action last night and we will talk about that in a minute um if you are watching us live please share the show give us a thumbs up send it out to all your friends and all your enemies because you know your enemies need to have fun too right they, they, and, they, they need a, a perspective on all the things related to God the Bible and real life and maybe they do and this is a show where we actually read the comments on the stream. So this is your opportunity to interact with us, interact with our guests. We have an amazing guest tonight to tell you about. Super excited about that. And um, we also want to introduce a new moderator tonight helping us out. Ms. Haley Lewis is joining the one and only Alicia Moss. Welcome, Haley. So if you see her, um, give her a shout out, give her a welcome to joining our moderator family. Awesome. Now tonight's show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, the Theology Mom Podcast, Family 210 Clothing, Impact 360, and Birmingham Theological Seminary. Whoop, whoop. Make sure that you visit um, the Family 210 Clothing Store online and, and we support have that our one. show. Yeah, we actually, Bob and I selected a, a design for tonight. Okay. Um, and to tell people about is you can go check out all our merch on the Center for Biblical Unity merch page. We've got our new redesigned one race, one people, one savior shirt. But tonight we are going to highlight the shirt that I'm wearing. I don't co-parent with the government. That's the official theology mom shirt. You can go check that out on the Center for Biblical Unity merch page. You can go there, select your size, your color, all that jazz, and um, just get the merch. Whenever you say all that jazz, it reminds me of Chicago. Oh, and sorry. all that jazz. Well, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the dancer in you. So about $10 of every purchase goes to help support the ministry, and we do thank you very much for your support. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what's happening and all of the excitement last night there in the nashville area you guys oh my gosh we've had like two tornado watches since i've been here and i just cannot even are last you cured from wanting to move there 
<laughs> no, because I would I still don't like earthquakes. Like if okay. I had to rank like earthquakes in California politics versus a tornado, tornado might win out. Um okay. good to know. But yes, so when the alarms start going off you have to go to like the lowest place in your house that has no windows. And so like, there's already the basement, but apparently the basement wasn't good enough for this tornado. Cause the first tornado, Lisa was just like, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> this tornado was like, uh-uh, time to get in the closet. Let's go. I was like, why are we all in the closet? What's going on? So was the closet big enough for all the children's? Yes. yes, it was deep. And the dog, you guys, it was such a memory. Like, it was it was a good one. It was a good one. And a big shout out to to Elisa's husband, Mike Childers, for holding it down for us because yeah, I would have just been lost. I would have just been blown away with Toto somewhere. And yes, we were all together and it all worked out. Um, so super thankful because I wouldn't have known what to do in a tornado. Yeah. And, and some the of the devastation oh, that some of the devastation that people experience in tornadoes is truly horrific and you know it's it's tough and I'm sure it was a little bit scary in in being there but you weathered it um you didn't get much sleep but uh you're you're still grinding it out there with the book you made some good progress this week yeah what's crazy what's crazy is that people today today I had to run to Target really quick and they were out just like like your state didn't try to kill you like they were birds chirping butterflies flying around and i was this is the same state that came from my life last night right yeah they it, not phased by it at all so yes i will be wrapping up here soon in the next couple of days and then flying home um shortly and so looking forward to being back in california yeah you were working this week on the multi-ethnic chapter uh for the book and really trying to give people a gospel centered vision for inter-ethnic families. Uh, they face challenging times right now. The culture has a lot of difficult messages for them, but I know that you've been working on that. Do uh, you want to just maybe share one quick thing that you've learned? Nope. this week? No, nothing. Okay, <laughs> fine. I think, <laughs> I think I'll have to read the book and see. Um, okay. no, but you know what's going to be good about this book is, um, or about this section on the multi-ethnic families that I actually did interviews of families who are multi-ethnic and share their perspective. I think that'll really be helpful to get real-time information from people who are walking this out. What does it look like to be a multi-ethnic family due to, um, you know, marrying someone outside of your, your ethnic group? Or what does it look like um, to be a multi-ethnic family because you participated in adoption? Multi-ethnic family, yes, but very separate and distinct issues. And so, yeah, just looking at looking at some of those things. And what does the the, the gospel and the scripture say to the multi-ethnic family? Like in, in relation to that, how do we participate as humans um, with one another in, in family and things like that? And so looking forward to, to having that finalized in the next day or so. That's awesome. Well, we're looking forward to having you come home on Monday and um, just seeing what the Lord is going to do with this book. And as you get home, Easter is right around the corner. We're going to be talking about the resurrection uh, today on the show, Easter. It's the most important holiday on the Christian calendar. Um, I'm excited to talk to our guest today and introduce him to everyone. Uh, let's bring him on here, Mr. 
Brian Wendell. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me, Krista and Monique. How are you guys doing? Doing well, thank We're you. We're doing good. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and um, some of you might remember that Brian was on the Theology Mom podcast last December. We did a show on the archaeology of Christmas. We thought it would be great to bring him to a bigger audience and talk about the archaeology of Easter. So this is going to be a fun discussion. Brian, maybe let's just start off. Give us the two-minute introduction to who you are and how you became interested in biblical archaeology. Well, I'm a pastor up here at a, at a church in northern Ontario, Canada, rural northern Ontario. I live in a town with a population of about, I don't know, four or five hundred people. So I'm a small town, northern Ontario. And um, and I got my start, I guess, in biblical archaeology in a couple of ways. Uh, I think a lot of us were uh, drawn by Indiana Jones, perhaps, even though um, what happens in the movies is not exactly what happens in in reality with archaeology. But the other thing that happened when I was a teenager, I was given uh, an old leather-bound Thompson chain reference Bible. And at the back of that Bible, there was an archaeological supplement. And so at a time when many people are questioning their faith, I had the opportunity to read about something in the Bible and then often flip back to that section and I could read more about that site or I could read about discoveries that shed more light on an event or or affirmed a particular person. And so that was very helpful for me. And so as I've um, gone through life and, and done a lot of Bible teaching, I love to make connections with the historical world and show how uh, biblical archaeology illuminates the, the biblical text. And then I began writing uh, for Associates for Biblical Research. It's a group of scholars and archaeologists who are dedicated to demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible through their research. Um, they're currently leading the dig at Shiloh, Israel. That's the place where the tabernacle stood for over 300 years. We think of stories of Samuel and Eli, and that's that's where we're going to be digging this year. And so uh, I, I write a breaking news update for them and do some work with their TV show, Digging for Truth. And then I also run my own website, BibleArchaeologyReport.com, where I blog a couple times a month about things related to biblical archaeology. Awesome. Thank you so much. You know, as um, we are looking at Easter, Jesus' resurrection, and as Krista said, that is the most important holiday in the Christian calendar, even though I thought Christmas was the most important holiday because you get gifts. I guess I was wrong. Um, why is Jesus' resurrection and um, its tie to history or to archaeology so important? Yeah, that's a really good question because it gets to the heart of, of this particular holiday, right? Um, for Christians, Easter represents this climactic event in all of human history, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and I, when I was, was thinking about this, um, a couple of verses, a couple of Bible verses came to mind. The first is 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds that we have been healed. And so um, the importance of, of what happened that first Easter, what happened at the cross, 
um, is is of paramount importance for us to have our sins forgiven because that's where Jesus um, bore our sins in our place for us. But then we're also told in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is necessary as well for our salvation. Um, Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And so both go together and both are really important. And so historic Christianity has always maintained that what is described in the Gospels, what happened that first Easter, um, were actual historical events that there was Jesus really did die on a cross. There was a literal crucifixion at a specific point in history. Um, he was buried in a tomb. He um, he rose again, literally, physically, bodily, not just a, a spiritual or metaphorical resurrection, but a, a literal resurrection. There was really an empty tomb. That's what the early Christians went around telling everybody that Jesus has risen. From the dead. Now, these are important truth claims, and Christianity rises and falls with the death and resurrection of Jesus, whether these claims are actually true or not. And so where I come at this particular issue, I, I look at the archaeology and I say, is there evidence for these claims? And I believe there is. I believe there's evidence. Now, if people are looking for that um that perfect evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, that this miracle happened, archaeology can't affirm miracles. <laughs> what it can do is it can it can show whether the the events that are described are historically accurate. Um, and and particularly when we're talking about tombs, we'll talk about some tombs a little later on. And, and so those are important, even, even around the issue of Jesus, the historicity of Jesus is important too. And there are two blogs I've written on my website. One is the top 10 archaeological discoveries related to Jesus. And then um, one of my critics posted a comment saying, none of this proves Jesus existed. And, and they didn't read the first part of the blog where I said, this isn't to prove Jesus existed. This is just to show that the Gospels are historically reliable. And then so I, I wrote a follow-up one called the ten, top 10 historical references to Jesus outside of the Bible. So when I look at the historical references and the archaeology, I believe there's evidence that would suggest that this is a true, accurate account of what happened that first Easter. I love that. One of the the things that we're always encouraging people to do around any matter is to look for evidence. And, you know, that's a very biblical principle that we look for evidence. And because Christianity is true, um, there should be evidence that would support the truth of our faith. And so I love that, um, you know, you're able to go in and say, no, you know, here is actual evidence that proves the historicity of Jesus. Yeah, and, and there's lots of evidence. That's the good news for Christianity. There is lots of evidence that the historicity of Jesus really is beyond beyond a shadow of a doubt, I would think. That's so Sorry good. Sorry to cut you off, Krista. No, that's good. I'm glad you, you had that follow-up. And we have to tell people, like, we're going to be stepping on each other a little bit more because we're on Zoom. We're not in the same room. We can't kick each other under, under the table when we want to say something. But uh, I think that the, the groundwork that we're laying here is really, really important because Christianity makes this very unique claim that we're not building our faith on a legend or an embellished legend. We're not, we're not 
um, grounding our faith in something that we hope is true. We are making the claim that Jesus was a real historical person and that his death, burial, and resurrection are captured in the scriptures, that, that the gospel accounts are ancient historical accounts of, of what happened. And we are making the additional claim that because Jesus rose from the dead, that this has deep theological implications that because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will have a hope of rising again. So Christianity has a very unique relationship to history. And archaeology, I think, is an important tool in, in that conversation. I don't know, Brian, if you want to add to that at all. Yeah, it's one of the things that I often tell um, people when I'm when I'm preaching or young people when I work with teenagers is, look, if 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 somebody promises you eternal life, but then dies, I'm not sure how good that promise really is. But if someone promises you eternal life, and then they ra are raised from the dead so that they conquer the grave, well, now that's a promise that this person I believe can back up. And so um, that's the the wonderful news that we share uh, about Easter that that eternal life is available because Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave. So one of the places, and and this is the thing that that we talked about last time you were here, Brian, is when the Bible tells us about places and people and geography, these are things that we need to pay attention to these little details. These aren't just throwaway things. These are things that root and ground the Bible in real space-time history. And one of the places that's mentioned in the gospel accounts, for example, is the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's just start with that. Like, talk to us about what do we know about Gethsemane? Do we really know where it was? Was it a real place? Because that was a location where Jesus was arrested. Yeah, we in the church today talk about the Garden of Gethsemane quite a lot, particularly around this point, um, this time of the year. But um, people may be surprised to hear that the Bible actually never refers to it as, quote, the Garden of Gethsemane. It, it refers to it as a place called Gethsemane in Matthew and Mark. It, we're told in Luke 22 that it's on the Mount of Olives. And um, and we're told in John that there was an olive grove there, which is, I think, where people get the idea that it was a garden. Gethsemane itself means uh, olive presses or the, the place where they press oils. And so today, uh, if people go to Israel, they often will go to the Garden of Gethsemane that has all sorts of uh, olive trees. It's, it's a beautiful, serene place. Um, sometimes people think that those are the actual trees that were there when Jesus was there, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but they probably weren't, because Josephus tells us that when the Romans um, destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they cut down all the trees on the Mount of Olives. And so, but here's the thing, um, olive trees uh, grow from the roots back up again. And so some of the trees standing today there are very ancient trees and, and may very well 
be the descendants of the trees that were there. And so um, there is a garden of Gethsemane. What's interesting is that the question that I ask, looking at it from an archaeological point of view, is, is there any evidence that there was a place there where there was an olive press? Because that's what Gethsemane means. It means the place where they pressed oil. So is there evidence of some sort of oil production uh, from the first century? And the answer is yes, there is a, a site. It's actually a cave. It's called the Cave of Gethsemane or the Grotto of Betrayal. Um, and it may actually be the place that is the uh, site of the betrayal of Jesus, or at least maybe the spot where the disciples slumbered, given that John tells us in John 18 that it was a really cold night. It makes sense. They might have sought shelter nearby, and excavations within that cave have revealed um, the installation still there, that um, that it was a place that was used for pressing olives in ancient times to make olive oils. and And recently... Um, on the Mount of Olives nearby, again, they they unearthed a, a mikvah, which is a, a Jewish a purification bath or baptismal tank. Um, in, in the first century, this wave of ritual purity swept through Israel. And so if there's going to be an olive production there, you would think if there were Jewish people working there, they would want to have the ritual purity bath nearby. And they found one recently dating to the first century. And so does that prove that Jesus was there? No. But I go, isn't it interesting? The Bible describes Gethsemane as a place where they pressed oils. And when we go to the Mount of Olives in the nearby region, we do indeed find that there was a place there where they pressed olives to make olive oil in the first century. I have a question and maybe I just am not up on my Bible reading and that's true. You can tell me, but you said that Josephus tells us that they cut down all the, the olive groves or all the trees. Where'd you get that from? Like, is it in like Mark? Did I miss it? Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, jo do you mean like, where is it in Josephus? Is, is she Josephus might not know, like she might not know book that is. So it's not part of the 66, like you did to come after Revelation. Oh, yeah, no, no. Josephus is an ancient uh, Jewish historian who wrote in the first century. And a lot of the information that we get about Jerusalem, because he was an eyewitness there, he was an eyewitness in 70 AD to the destruction of Jerusalem. Oh, and okay. so he wrote this ancient history, which is a really valuable source of information, um, gives us all kinds of information about um, about Jerusalem, about the temple, because he was an eyewitness uh, at that time. And so for archaeologists and historians, Josephus is one of the most important ancient writings because it's right from the time that some of the New Testament documents were being written. He was there and seeing some things. So it's not scripture. It's not part of the canon, but he has several ancient books that he wrote, which are histories, which archaeologists refer to all of the time. Okay, that's very, I see, I didn't know that. Brian, I'm gonna let you know, I represent the regular people. Krista <laughs> represents good. the theologians, okay? I am, I'm I'm here for the regulars. And so sometimes that's I have fun. to ask you, you know, connect the dots for me. Thank you. That's wonderful. Please do, please do. I'm happy to do that. Now, I do have another question. Um, when we think about um, the crucifixion and like the time and everything leading up to that, there was a guy named Annas and there was, I believe, a trial that was held even at Annas's house. Is Annas like a real figure? What do we know about him and his home and location and all of that in relation to the crucifixion? Yeah, because we've been reading about 
the trial just this week as a family, we've been going through our family devotions and Annis uh, was, and we should maybe clarify for pride that Monique lives with our family. And so we've been going through the gospel of Luke and getting revved up for uh, Holy Week. And we were reading about Annis and just wondering like, is this a real person? What do we know about him? Yeah. Yeah, well, Annis was a, a wily old guy. He had been the um, he had been the high priest from AD six to AD fifteen, um, and then he was uh, I believe he was deposed. But here's the thing: he was such a wily old guy that he was able to get his sons and son in laws into the role after him. So even though he wasn't the high priest, he often was someone who influenced um, the high priest of that time because he was their father or their father-in-law. In fact, we're told in John 18, verse 13, that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that particular year. Again, to refer back to that Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, he writes this. He said, it was held that the elder Annas was extremely fortunate, for he had five sons, all of whom after him had previously enjoyed the office of high priest, for a long time. And so um, it's not surprising. And again, this is a mark of authenticity in the Gospels that when they brought Jesus to trial before the Jewish leaders, they didn't take him first to Caiaphas. They took him first to Annas. And that is historically accurate because he was a very powerful people. In fact, some historians say he was pulling a lot of the strings behind the scenes, even though he wasn't the person in the official office. And so um, that was, he was, Jesus was led to Annas to be interrogated. And uh, he, of course, is mentioned in numerous places in the Bible, outside of the Bible. And so uh, absolutely, he was uh, a real person. Now, um, some people wonder, what do we know where the house of Annas was? And, um, and, and we don't know that for sure. There are different sites. There's a site that's traditionally identified as the the uh, house of the high priest on the eastern slope of Mount Zion, where there's a modern church built over the remains of a 6th century AD church. Um, but here's the thing. There are a number of mansions that belong to wealthy priests um, that date to the 1st century that have been unearthed in the Jewish quarter uh, in um, in the old city of Jerusalem. For example, a very famous house some, some people go to see. It's called the Burnt House uh, of Catros, who was a, a later high priest. It was destroyed during the first revolt. And um, and in 1970, um, renowned archaeological architect Lane Rittmeyer uh, was part of a team that excavated a large palace near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, just simply known today as the Palatial Mansion. And he believes that that's the palace of Annas, who ruled as a, as a high priest. And he... Um, he said clearly it was a priest household because there were a number of, of ritual baths found in it. The fact that it was a very wealthy place, it was a mansion, uh, fits with what we know of the priestly caste at that time in uh, Jerusalem. And so um, it had mosaic floors, fresco-adorned walls. So you just imagine um, the high priest, this kind of a house would be the house that uh, someone like the high priest would uh, would live in. Now, do we know that for sure? No, we don't. But again, I, I often point out to people and say, isn't it interesting that we read of a man of, of incredible influence outside of the Bible, and, and then we read in the Bible that they don't take Jesus first to Caiaphas, they take him first to Annas. And that's historically accurate from what we know about this person. 
Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know all of that about Annas and um, even his connection to Caiaphas. And again, these little details, you know, that we might think are almost throwaway details of people or places, they're actually very important in in drawing those connections to history. Um, it makes me also think about somebody like Pontius Pilate. Um, you know, what do we know about him? And he's ultimately the one who sends Jesus to the cross. But do we do do we know outside of the Bible much about Pilate? Yeah, we do. We know we know a considerable amount uh, about Pilate from again ancient writings. Um, we we hear about him from a, a Roman historian Tacitus, and we we also um, Philo, I believe, also talks about him as well. And and um, he was the Roman governor of Judea. And for those of us who read the Bible around this time of year at Easter, he was of course the man who um, condemned Jesus to die by crucifixion. Um, history tells us that he was the Roman prefect of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. And um, in in his annals, Tacitus uh, writes that uh, about the suspicions when Nero um, was the emperor and when there was this great fire in Rome. And he writes about how people were suspicious of Nero, that he had started the fire himself, and then he tried to defect the blame. And this is what the Roman historian wrote. He said, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, uh, procurators Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Now, this this passage, not in the Bible, this is a passage from a, from a Roman historian writing, uh, I believe, near the end of the first century, early second century. He he is writing uh, about uh, Christus, Jesus Christ, who was put to death uh, by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at that time. Um, and so it's important because um, everyone agrees that this is an authentic, an authentic writing. Nobody questions the authenticity of this historian. Secondly, he's seen as an independent source. He's not, um, he's not just reciting things from the gospels. He he's a, a totally different um, source. And and thirdly, it, it it affirms a number of the details: Pontius Pilate crucifying Jesus. But the thing that I find really interesting about this is that phrase that there was this mischievous superstition that that was checked for a moment, but then broke out and went through the empire. And there are, are many of us who have, have looked at this and studied this and believe that this is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus, that that was the superstition that was being spread by Christians starting in Judea throughout the Roman empire. And so, uh, so we have these historical writings that talk about Pontius Pilate, but then we also have archeology. span We have some several discoveries that have, related to Pontius Pilate. Uh, in 1961, Italian archaeologists unearthed a stone inscription while they were excavating an amphitheater um, near Caesarea Maritima, and this limestone block 
uh, was part of a dedication to some building that was dedicated to Tiberius Caesar. And it says from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And so we now have archaeological evidence for uh, Pontius Pilate. Of course, uh, people would say we also have coins that were minted by Pontius Pilate as well. More recently, there was a, a, a ring that was discovered, a bronze ring that says uh, of Pilatus, uh, Pilate's uh, ring. And it had been found years ago during the 1968-69 excavations at the Herodium. They found it, got put in a box and forgotten about. And just a year or two ago, it, it, someone found it and cleaned it and realized what it said. And um, scholars don't think it was necessarily the the ring that he would have worn, but possibly because of the, the Latin grammar, possibly the ring that one of his slaves would have worn who was conducting business on his behalf, especially since the name Pilate is such a rare name, and the most famous of which in that particular area was Pontius Pilate. Well, we have a quick question on YouTube from Jeff Davis. He wants to know, uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, Brian, you might not know the, the answer, but do we know anything about Pilate's wife? Yeah, I don't believe we do, at least not that I can think of off the top of my head. The, the, the thing that we do know about Pilate's wife, the main thing comes from the Gospels, of course. We're, we're right. told that she had had a dream and sent a message to her husband to... Um, to, to have nothing to do with Jesus. And so that's the main thing that we know historically about Pilate's wife. Um, I'm not sure if any of the other historical writings uh, mention her by name. Very good. I just think it's fascinating how much we can know um, about this time, about the time where Jesus lived, about the crucifixion, about... Um, you know, like all all of the first century and what people's thoughts were about it. I really actually wish that, um, and, you know, not that this would be like pulpit time, but that more churches talked about this, that this would be something that we actually received teaching on as part of um, like our Christian, our Christian witness and our Christian life and understanding like, hey, your faith actually um, connects with history and there's evidence for it. Um, in looking at the crucifixion, what do we know about the the crucifixion and um, like its practice? I know it was a Roman practice, but were the Romans the ones who came up with it? Was this something that was maybe brought into their culture and then practiced? What can you what light can you shed on um, shed with us about the Christian um, about the crucifixion? Sure. Well, I do, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but I would argue they perfected cru crucifixion as a, a method of execution and, and certainly a, a method of torture. And uh, we believe that it likely originated with the Assyrians and the way that they would impale people on on uh, on sticks or on these long poles. It was used systematically by the Persians in the 6th century BC. And then, of course, as I said, perfected by um, the Romans. We actually know quite a bit about um, about crucifixion because historians like Herodotus and, and Josephus, who we've already mentioned, they both testified to the practice. I mean, the Romans crucified thousands and thousands of people. And when they did so, they did so publicly so that it would serve as a warning to other people to stay in line, particularly uh, other people in lands that they had captured and occupied. 
archaeologically, there is a really important discovery related to the New Testament, and that is the heel bone of a crucified man. In 1968, there was a construction crew uh, with the Ministry of Housing in Israel, and they were working in an area in northeast Jerusalem, and they accidentally dug up several tombs. So when that happens in Israel, they call in the archaeologists, work stops, they call in the archaeologists, and they do an excavation there, and they discover that there were a number of ossuaries in it. Now, an ossuary is a, a limestone bone box, um, and so... Um, was only used for a brief period in history, a little bit in the first century BC and in the first century AD. And so when we find an ossuary, we're, we're pretty sure we know about the time frame that it, uh, it dates to. And inside are the bones of the person who has died. They would lay the body out. When the body decomposed, they would come back later and gather the bones and put them in these bone boxes. And inside this bone box, they discovered a heel bone with a, a nail still embedded in it. And so clearly it was a crucified person. And on the outside was the name of the person. It was Yehohanan. And um, his right heel bone still contained the rusted spike. It, it seems that it, it must have hit a knot. It's The nail is curved a little on the end. So they, they figure that they couldn't get it out of the bone. So they just threw the bone with the nail in it when they, when they put him back in here. Now, um, it's really interesting because they can look at this and they can study this now, and they, I am sure that the Romans probably crucified people in, in numerous different uh, ways and positions, but people who have studied this particular bone have suggested that unlike maybe some of the, the images or pictures we see of someone being crucified with their, their feet in front of them against the upright piece of wood, um, they've suggested that Yehohanan was actually crucified with a leg straddling either side of it and the nail driven in from either side, that that appears how he was crucified on this particular one. But here's what's really interesting about this, is that there are people, critics, who have said that Jesus would never have been buried in a tomb. He was crucified as a criminal, and criminals in the Romans' days who were crucified were never given the dignity of a proper burial by their family in a tomb. But now we have this heel bone of a crucified man found in an ossuary in a family tomb. And it demonstrates that, yes, indeed, family members could petition to get the body of their loved ones, even if they had been crucified. And so that helps us to understand that there, uh, this, this account of Jesus and, and Joseph of Arimathea going and getting the body of Jesus to bury him in a tomb is actually um, is actually accurate. The, the heel bone of Yehohanan dates to the first century, um, and, and so we see that it, it matches that. Now, there is another piece of evidence, and, and um, when people think of crucifixion and when they think of this as it relates to... Um, to Easter, often people think of the Shroud of Turin, which is a very famous burial shroud, and it is um, it it's a it bears a, a negative image. It appears of a crucified man. Now, people have suggested that it was a medieval forgery, and there was some testing done on the shroud that did suggest that the threads um, were were later than the uh, the rest of the. That they were later from the medieval times. Unfortunately, um, they they did their testing from a part where 
there was a known repair done in the Middle Ages. And so a lot of people look at that and go that you can't really trust that particular test. What's really interesting is that um, there have been a number of other scientific tests performed on it over time. Uh, residue from a rare type of limestone, which is common to Jerusalem, was cover was discovered on it. And, and a recent um, study published in the scientific journal Plus One analyzed the Shroud of Turin and, and the marks of bloods that were that were on it. And they discovered they were able to test and find that there were nanoparticles in the blood, which are nanoparticles that are found in the blood of crucified victims or people who have undergone extreme torture, but are not found in the blood of normal people who die without that particular torture. And so um, the blood stains on the on the cloth, this particular study, the most recent one of which has come about, seem to indicate that the shroud is authentic. Now, here's here's my little um, asterisk that I that I put on that. I don't know that anyone is ever going to be able to prove whether that's the shroud of Jesus, as some people believe, or whether it's not. For my part, what I what I think, having looked at the evidence, and there have been lots of different studies done on this this artifact, I believe that it is an authentic first century burial shroud of a crucified man. That is all we can claim. But even at that, it's really helpful because it you can see um, the 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 remains of the stains of where he um, where he was beaten and where he was uh, where they nailed him and and so it's very helpful for us to understand how crucifixion happened and when you look at that and you compare it to the gospels again it lines up. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, go ahead, Monique. You um, gosh, it it this is this question might be a little bit you know over here, but I definitely want to ask just because um, you keep referring back to like a crucified man when men were crucified and things like that. Were women ever crucified? I is there any so. like, act, you know, evidence for that? I believe, I believe so. I can't point my finger on it, but when I was doing some study on crucifixion, um, I'm not sure that the Romans really cared much about mm. the sex of the person. They, um, if you were a criminal or sus suspected criminal, um, and you were not a Roman citizen because Roman citizens had special rights at that time. Um, they they would crucify you. And so I, I believe um, it, it could go either way. So we have a question on Facebook uh, asking about the linens. What do we know about linens that Jesus was wrapped in while he was dead in the tomb? So you just finished talking about the shroud as being a potential first century burial um, cloth. I, I I like that modest, more modest claim. I don't know if I'm totally comfortable with saying definitively, you know, it's the burial cloth of Jesus, but I like the modest claim of saying the, the signs are pointing to it being at least a first century burial cloth. Do we, do we have any other evidence of, you know, burial cloths, from the first century or anything that would tell us about how Jesus was buried? Well, we don't have a lot of cloth from the first century because of course it, it degradates over time. Um, people would, uh, people who believe in the shroud would argue that, that this was venerated very early on. And so that's why it has survived. It was protected. Um, we do have, we do have some, usually it comes in just little pieces. And, and so um, enough to say that the weave 
that is used in the Shroud of Turin is authentic to that particular period of time. And so, um, again, just little clues that make me um, little clues that are enough to convince me that that it is that it is an authentic burial, burial shroud. Now, I have no idea how the image was imposed on that. Um, nobody can figure that out. Um, what the one thing they have said is there is no way in the Middle Ages they had the knowledge to paint something in the negative like that in such a way. And they've also demonstrated quite conclusively that the blood that is on it is actually the remains of 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 blood. So I think authentic first century burial shroud is is a good thing that we can claim and very instructive for us as we study it to know how they crucified people at that time. Very good. Well, Let's talk a little bit more about burial practices um, because burial practices tell us a lot about a culture. And it's often one of the things that is most preserved in archaeology. We you already talked a little bit about ossuaries. Um, so maybe let's build that part of the the story out a little bit more about first century burial practices. We read in the gospels about you know, them putting them in a kind of a cave, putting a rock in front of it, maybe help us put some of these pieces together. Sure. Well, the first part of the burial is the part that we read about in the New Testament, um, which is where they would come and they would anoint the body with, uh, with oils and perfumes. They would wrap the body and then they would put it in a tomb, which is a, a cave-like tomb, that a hewn tomb. And um, it was only at a later period of time, a year later or whatever, when they would come back and gather the bones and put them in ossuaries. But what we have in the Gospels is the first, the initial burial. Um, and, and what we're told in the Gospels is that Joseph of Arimathea came, that he had a brand new tomb that he had hewn out. In fact, we're told that it was a tomb in which no person had ever lain before. And um, and so Jesus was buried in that particular tomb. Now, the big question that a lot of people want to know is, where is the tomb? Which tomb is it? And so if you've if you followed this at all, there are three tombs in Jerusalem that um, people champion as the tomb of Jesus, the, the tomb of Jesus, the final burial, burial resting place before he rose from the dead. One is the Taipot family tomb. One is the garden tomb which is where a lot of Protestants go when they go to Israel, a beautiful garden, serene type place. And the other is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I have a, I have a blog on my website about these three, and basically I, I analyze the evidence for them. But for the sake of brevity, let me just say this. There is virtually no chance that the Taipot family tomb is the tomb of Jesus. So we can just discount that uh, right off the bat, which leaves the garden tomb and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the main problem with the garden tomb that I see from an archaeological point of view is it's not a first century tomb. It's a tomb from the Iron Ages. It was over 600 years old by the time Jesus died. It is not the new tomb in which a person uh, never laid. And, and, and so unlike the garden tomb, though, when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is a long history with that particular site identifying it as the church where um, there, as the burial place where Jesus was buried. And so there's all kinds of evidence, both written um, early on, Jerome and Eusebius recording that the emperor uh, Hadrian had had um, 
had built a platform over the tomb of Jesus and placed a statue of Jupiter over top of it. And then Constantine came in and tore that down and they dug down, they found the tomb and they built um, the, the shrine. And so um, when they, when you look at all of the writings, um, it lines up with some of the more recent discoveries um, in December, 2017, this was big news and national geographic and everywhere because they, they had to do renovations to the Edicule, this structure they built around it. And so they they took the limestone um, platform off the burial bed for the first time in 500 years, and they've done testing on it. And basically the testing matches all of the written descriptions of when it was renovated and when it was built and those kinds of things. And so the evidence seems to point to that being the location of the empty tomb of Jesus. Um, now, I know that a lot of people who've been to Israel love the garden tomb. It's a serene place. And I think it has value because it's probably closer to the what the original tomb in a garden would have looked like than um, that some people have said it's just this big kind of almost gaudy edifice that's been built around uh, it there. And so I have a friend who I like the way he puts it. He says the garden tomb has the right feel, but it's the wrong tomb. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is probably the right tomb, but it's got the wrong feel. And so um, that would be probably how I would summarize the empty tombs. And and I think the best evidence we have is that the, the tomb that remains in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in, within the edicule that they built around it, is probably the, the tomb of Jesus. Very good. And, and when we're thinking about these matters... Um... I think it's it's helpful for us to always keep in mind, you know, what archaeology can do. Like these types of conversations are super exciting for us, very faith building that, yeah, our faith is historical. It's rooted and grounded in real space-time history. But <laughs> all of this can't prove, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond all doubt that Jesus's tomb was empty. There are certain limits of what archeology span can do, but there are also good solid inferences that we could make. Maybe you could speak to that, um, that issue a little bit. Yeah. Um, archeology span is the study of the material remains of humans that they've left behind. And so that's, that's what archeology span is. We look at the things they built that we look at the, the, the pottery they used. We we look at those sorts of things. And, and that tells us a lot about the culture of the people at that particular time. And um, But it can't prove a, um, a miraculous event. It, it That's just beyond the scope of archaeology. And really, for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, we do so by faith. And so it's not a blind faith. Uh, there is good evidence for that, that the Gospels are historically accurate descriptions of the life of Jesus. And really the best evidence, I think, for the resurrection is the fact that we have the written testimony of his earliest followers that claimed that the tomb of Jesus was empty that first Easter morning. And especially when you consider that, um, that there were people who were hostile to Jesus, who eventually put their faith in Jesus when they encountered him risen. I think of his brother. I, I think of, of the Apostle Paul. So you have hostile witnesses and the disciples, um, the disciples themselves 
almost all of them ended up being martyred for their faith, for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I did mention earlier, we have the, the writing of, of Tacitus, who, who says, uh, des describes this mysterious superstition. There is one other artifact that's really intriguing, and it may relate to the resurrection of Jesus, too. It's called the Nazareth inscription. It's a marble um, tablet with a Greek inscription, apparently came from Nazareth, in which uh, Caesar um, says that anyone who is caught robbing bodies from tombs will uh, have the death penalty imposed upon him. Now, that's strange because tombs have always been robbed in antiquity, but they don't steal the bodies, they steal the goods. They don't steal the bodies. So what historical context could there be that would cause the Roman Caesar to have to, in the area of Nazareth, publish this edict outlining that there would be uh, a death penalty for anyone who stole bodies. Well, if you think back to Matthew 28, we read there that that the the lie was spread about that the disciples stole the bodies. And um, Dr. Clyde Billington, who's an associate professor of ancient history at Northwestern College, has studied this in depth, and he concludes the context of the Nazareth inscription clearly proves it was written for Jews and not Gentiles, that it was almost certainly issued by the Emperor Claudius in response to the story of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so another artifact. Now, all archaeology needs to be interpreted. And so some other people can look at that and go, mm, I don't think so. Um, uh, there was a study done just a year or two ago on that particular artifact. They they looked at the um, the limestone from it or the um, the marble from it, and they were like, oh, this came from an island, a, a Greek island, Kos. It, you know, it's not from, you know, Israel. Well, that's where they got all of their marble was from Greece. They didn't, they don't have it in. So just the fact that it was imported doesn't mean that the inscription is not authentic too. Wow. So much. I'm just sitting here like, I didn't know. I did not know that this was available. Um, we have a question from Jenny on YouTube and she says, there are shows that claim an ossuary um, with Jesus' name has been found. Do you know anything about that? Sure. So Ginny is referring to the very famous uh, James Ossuary. And um, so Ginny, stay tuned. I am writing a blog right now on the James Ossuary. So it'll be coming out on my website probably in a week or two. And um, it, it says, um, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And so very famous Ossuary. When it first came out, it, of course, that would have raised all sorts of um, expectations. But then there were people who said, no, it's um, the second part of the inscription or the first part, depending on who you talk to, was added later. And there was this big uh, trial, actually, for seven years in Israel, where the person who owned it was was accused of forging that part of it. Um, and then um, so that's what most people know. You know, all of that hits the news and that's all they hear. They don't hear the end of the trial, which was the person uh, that basically they they acquitted him on those charges of forging it. And new studies have been done, which are really interesting because they show that the patina that is inside, so the little incrustations inside the um, inscription, when looking at it on a microscope, you can see the same ancient patina on both parts of the inscription, both the James and the brother 
of Jesus parts. And, and with ossuaries, there's only one other ossuary that we know of where a brother is mentioned. And we believe it's because the brother was famous. All of the rest of them really just say either a name or the name and the son of. And so uh, this ossuary, uh, the problem is it came from the antiquities market. And generally, if something comes from the antiquities market, you don't really know the context of where it was discovered or where it was taken from. And so there are people within the archaeological community who just write off anything from the antiquities market right away because there are so many forgeries. But this particular artifact ended up in this person's collection and was in there since the 1970s. And he never tried to make money off it, never tried to, didn't even know what he had in his collection there. And so I think that there's some evidence to suggest that this ossuary may indeed be authentic, but that's my little teaser. Wait for the blog. Very good. We will anticipate that. I remember reporting about the discovery of the James ossuary right after it happened. It seems like it had to have been like 15 years ago now. I mean, yeah, it, 2003, 2003 was the first article, I believe. Okay. So 20 years review. ago. Yeah. yeah. And I read there, I remember there was all this swirl of controversy of maybe it was a forgery. So it's great to hear some continued studies have been done and that, that the picture is becoming more clear. So I look forward to reading your report. And I want to remind everyone once again, how you can get connected with Brian and his friends at the association associates for biblical research, ABR, um, go check out their website, their Digging for Truth television show. You'll see Brian as a contributor there on that show. That's how I found him. He, his segments were always my favorites. He loves to do, um, how, what do you call them? Ar archaeographies, archaeological biographies. <laughs> archaeological I mean, biographies. Yeah, I, I coined the word bioarchaeography. There um, we go. Using archaeology <laughs> to tell the story of someone's life. Yeah, and you can go on YouTube. I love those. I got to say, those shows are the ones that I watch over and over and over again. You know, you might do an, uh, what's the archaeological evidence for Cyrus the Great or, um, you know, Queen Esther. You know, you had some stuff related to the Book of Esther. There's just Abraham. That one was so interesting. There was so much more about Abraham than I realized. So go check out the Digging for Truth show on their YouTube channel and just, they're doing some great work there, uh, connecting the dots for us on history, archeology span and the Bible. So Associates for Biblical Research, also check out uh, Brian's personal blog is, I'm gonna go back to it, biblical biblearchaeologyreport.com, do I have that correct? That's right, BibleArchaeologyReport.com, and I, I generally do two blogs a month. Uh, one is an original blog, often a, a bioarchaeography or a top 10 list. And so um, I'm, I'm right now I'm doing the one on the James Ossuary, but I'm also um, doing one coming up. You mentioned Esther. I'm hoping to do a top 10 list of, of discoveries related to the book of Esther coming yeah. up in the, in the near time. So, yeah. It's just such a, a great ministry that you do. And I love how you translate it all for, for regular people and taking that top level research that other people are doing and then translating it for the rest of us, the non-experts. 
thank you for doing this, Brian. We really appreciate it. Well, ladies, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a joy to be with you tonight. Yeah, well, thank you so much. much. God bless. We'll see you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. That was. I, I can tell you were learning a lot. You you were you were like, wait, what? I learned a new word. I never heard the word ossuary before. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Okay. It's a bone box. It is. It's a there bone you box. Go. Not so trying to collect would... bones, but you know. I don't know whose job it was to go back after a year after the flesh decayed to collect the bones and put them in the box. But yeah, that's it was a burial practice, very short period of time when that practice was used, but just so happens to correspond to, you know, Jesus in the early church. So, and a very useful, I mean, albeit I wouldn't want it to be my job, but I think today it's proving to be useful. Yeah. So does, does it make you, I'm just curious, like what thoughts you have about, you know, the historical connections you just finished taking new Testament you know, in seminary. So are some of these connections kind of coming together for you there? It's just, it, again, it, I think, um, and we've talked about this before, just the, the realness of Christianity and how, you know, we can know that we know things, we know things based on evidence that the faith that we hold today is connected to an ancient faith that there is a connection between us as believers today and Jesus and, you know, the first century church and the disciples and things like that. And so it's not this disconnected, you know, something that is just for me that I just have and I practice and then you have, you know, what's for you and you practice that over there. Believers today are connected, but we also have a connection back to, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so yeah. um, I I love that. And I love that I can um, know that with certainty mm-hmm. and that there's proof for that. That's great. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed talking to Brian. Uh, we're going to hear from our friends at Impact 360 and Birmingham Theological Seminary. Then we're going to come back and offer some thoughts and comments about the developments in Nashville and the shooting this week. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back in two minutes. My time with BTS has been a time of theological excellence, but it's also been a time of learning practical personal ministry. The things that I learned here at BTS, I have implemented them into my ministry. I was not necessarily planning on getting a seminary degree. I just would choose Birmingham Theological Seminary classes that I was the most interested in that I thought could help me develop the most. But I ended up getting my MDiv from BTS and there's so much that I've learned. I'm really, really indebted to BTS because without it, I don't think I could have gotten this far. I initially started it because I had been called to a church had no theological education, but knew I needed it. So between having my first child, doing my first job, and having my first church, BTS came in and just sort of helped me to understand what it meant to be a qualified minister, to be a studied minister that could rightfully divide the word of truth. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples, and they'd always say that verse, and I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like at all. 
And then when I got here, they taught me like everything I was curious to know about, like progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere. And that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and really diving into them. And not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual thing, it's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life. And Propel has really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. Okay, we're back. And once again, we want to encourage you to go check out our friends at uh, Impact 360 and their summer programs coming up for high school students. Well, Monique, we just saw an ad for our friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. Um, and I got some communication earlier this week that, you know, really hit close to home with the Nashville shooting. Um, the pastor of the church that was connected to the school and um, when it, he, he's a BTS grad. And so there was, oh, no. um, you know, a close connection between BTS and the shooting and his daughter was, was one of the victims there. And so such a sad situation we find ourselves in with yet another shooting. Um, I think for, for me personally, this one just, it's so close to home because of the, the church and the school's connection to our seminary where we're going at BTS. And one of my professors in the doctoral program is on staff at, at the church as well. Wow. And so definitely, um, hits close to home there were six victims three of them in their 60s and they were school employees and then three nine-year-old students and um just the 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 head of school i mean you and i working with um so many schools we get to know these people we get to know the heads of schools we get to know the teachers and i was thinking this could have very well been a school that would have reached out to us, you know, and a ministry like ours and thinking about the head of school and, and that she sacrificed her life to save some of her employees and, and students. And um, one of the children that was, that was shot, um, she was shot while trying to pull the alarm to mm. notify others um, of the, the danger. So it's just, just uh, such a sad sad situation and with easter coming uh i just kept have had a lot of thoughts about the resurrection that when we're talking about history the reason why history matters for us as christians is it gives us a real hope or the christian hope is not just an a nice idea or a pretty word for us the hope is in a person and that because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise. And um, this is this is the point of historical events of like the resurrection and described in First Corinthians for uh, fifteen that without the resurrection of Jesus, we 
there would be no hope for an afterlife there it would only be a wish or a prayer you know but but not a hope and our hope as christians is quite different than than what the world has so those have been some of my thoughts surrounding the situation is um the, it is a great loss it's a tragic loss uh these these actions that happened were uh evil but we know as christians kind of the bigger story and we have this hope of jesus and uh that because he rose from the dead we too will rise so those have been some of my thoughts i know you've been um, you know, writing and, and you're not really following the news so much, but you have kind of tuned into some things. I'm just wondering what some of your thoughts are and, and, uh, you know, what you're seeing from your perspective. Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, you know, yes. And amen to everything that you said and that we do have a bigger hope and, and that Christianity offers us a different hope, a, a better hope. And I, you know, as I've heard, um, leaders say things, um, and I've watched people talk about the victims and the trans narrative and all that. While I never want to pull it away from the victims who, um, who were killed tragically, my mind continues to circle around. This is an ideology. This is intentional. This is a narrative as you know, the, the shooter has been, you know, seen as being a victim and, the trans community is under attack and, you know, all of those things before we can even, you know, we, we all, let me say this, we have this very real conversation in our culture right now about say the name, you know, in 2020 and um, 2021, you know, Black Lives Matter would come out and it was say the name, but no one's saying their names, you know, no one's saying the names of the victims who were shot at the school. And so I, I immediately just wonder why. You know, why would we, why why are there some names that are okay to say and some names that are not okay to say? Well, it's because there's a narrative, there's something that's being pushed that, that people have to believe that there has to be a proletariat, there has to be a victim, there has to be a class of people um, in order for, personally, what I see as an ideology um, to go forward. And so when I think about this shooting and um, the lives lost and how this is being framed in our country and things like that, it just it, it just takes me back to the genderqueer narrative that's being pushed and what it's tied to and what some of those end objectives are. Um, and I think that it is, gosh, it's very frustrating. It's sad. It's, it's, um, angering. Um, and, and I know that as believers, we do have, you know, a hope we do have a promise in Jesus. And I guess for me, it's, it's a both. And yes, I have a hope in Jesus. And I can definitely acknowledge that this is, this here is what our culture is wanting to send us to what our leaders are wanting to, you know, some of our leaders, I won't say all of our leaders, um, but are wanting to usher us into this idea that certain people are victims and because they are victims, you know, poor these people and we should expect certain things because of um, the, the narrative of marginalization, oppression and victimhood. So you said a lot there. I want to um, highlight a couple of points that you're making. It was very thoughtful. Um, I've never seen such a turnaround in in the news narrative than in this situation. I mean, 
within 24 hours, we went from uh, a normal reporting about the shooting incident and, and kind of watching it unfold in a normal fashion to by the, the next day, there was a recasting of it as, well, we're not going to focus on the victims. Rather, we're going to focus on Christianity as being an oppressor and that this shooter was driven to shooting as a, a victim. And so there's almost this, this thought of uh, recasting the narrative. Now we're going to, this is the first shooting I can ever remember where we're, we're not focusing on the victims and mourning the victims. We're really mourning the shooter. It, it's, it's very strange to me. I mean, there's a lot of firsts, I, I would say, here. The, this is one of the first times where, where the shooter isn't being considered a terrorist, um, where the shooter is made the victim, where um, we are not hearing, you know, victims' names and things like that. Well, and, and I guess for me, I'm asking the question, well, why is that? Is it because the shooter is now someone who is seen as a minority class? And Christianity as... Anybody who follows, you know, the Center for Biblical Unity, what we talk about is, um, you know, we will talk about Christian oppression. How are Christians seen as the oppressor class? And so what if if the victim is now not the victim, if the the shooter is now the victim and there are conversations happening, you know, where we don't want to to look at the 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 shooter as being truly the the shooter and the bad guy in this situation, but but as the victim, what does that mean for those who are now killed? Are, is it okay? Is there is there some kind of um, you know, permission. stamp of approval or permission, some kind of state sanction that if you know you're triggered by a Christian and you happen to kill them, we excuse that? I think there's questions that we need to be asking as a nation, whether you're a Christian or not, because just because it could be targeted toward, you know, white people one day, Christians the next day, doesn't mean that it won't come toward whatever your group is on day three. So, yeah, looking at it theologically from a Christian perspective, now you're saying, OK, now put on this different set of lenses, looking at it through the critical social theories. This kind of helps explain the reporting the the reverse narrative um i think you're raising that this is a this is a horrible thought that i've had but it it almost makes me feel like it's it's trying to build a, a martyr narrative around the shooter mm -hmm. in order to create um i don't know like just forging a new path of like hey you know, if people belong to a particular social location, then there's a different set of moral codes in place. And, and there's an acceptance of violence as a, you know, as an okay thing. And as you said, I, I want to unpack a little bit more what you mean by they need, this is kind of a needed narrative in order to build the proletariat. Like, I'm not sure I know what that means. So the more I, um, I wish I had some books um, in here with me, but the more I read um, things like Hegel or Marcuse or Marx, um, 
one of the things that you see is this, there has to be a proletariat. That was, that was Mark's entire endeavor is, um, is that the oppressed? Yeah. The, his, his, his freedom for the oppressed group, for the proletariat, helping the proletariat to understand their, their true oppression. But I, I believe personally in our society today, in order for true transformation or, um, revolution to occur, you have to have enough people to actually understand their oppression in order to have revolt. And so what we're seeing is this grouping, this this, um, continual collection of oppressed people, oppression based on culture and society's definition, not necessarily oppression based on any um, any biblical definition or even realistic definition of oppression. I'm oppressed because I'm black. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so yeah, when I we think... look, I'm sorry, when we look at this idea of moving toward transformation as, as a goal or moving toward revolution as a goal within the framework itself, who is going to do the, the revolutioning? or the transforming. It's going to be the marginalized and the oppressed. But you have to help people to understand, this was Marx's goal, you have to help people to understand their oppression. And so when we look at, um, you know, creating a narrative, I I honestly believe it's it's a narrative created in order to bring in societal transformation. This isn't to cause a bunch of uproar and stir, but it, when you dig down into the research, into the first sources of people like Marx, you know, or um, I, I've been reading a lot of Marcusa lately, you know, when when I listen or when I read some of his his writings or um, when I listen, he did a, a talk in 1968, I believe, at, at Berkeley, where he hit on some of these things. And so it's not outside of the realm of possibility, you know, to think that the ushering in of a new proletariat is needed to bring the societal transformation that I believe people have been working toward and working for. It is truly a long march through the institutions. And now, you know, here we are at a very um, pivotal moment where transformation could possibly occur. And I would say, you know, has begun occurring. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest and very transparent, like my heart has been really heavy, like Oh, we hear about these shootings all the time, but for whatever reason, this one I think has been um, probably hit me the hardest and it has been, and that's not to minimize the loss of life in any other of these mass shootings, but, you know, they all hit us a little differently. And, And for me, this one has hit particularly hard. And as I've been grappling with, you know, how do we show up for the conversation at the water cooler? in the office, on our social media, you know, during the days of George Floyd, those were a lot of the questions that we were getting. And now here we are in another um, situation of social unrest, um, not to the extreme yet as it was in 2020, but definitely like seeing some disturbing things on social media. And one one thing that I guess that I, a thought that I've had is the importance of when you're in a conversation with other people about this is differentiating between ideas and individuals. And and it it's tricky though, because for many of the individuals who are involved in, in the transgender 
movement, um, the ideas are the same as the individuals. They're they're kind of collapsed on top of each other. But <clears throat> historically, traditionally, we're able to have conversations about ideas and that that can be a robust conversation and it doesn't have to be seen as diminishing the humanity of the individuals who hold those ideas. But that's getting more and more difficult. But when we're face-to-face -face with people, I think that we have to be careful in how we weigh out our words uh, because of that and, and understanding that as people, as individuals, walking a road with others who are struggling, you know, <clears throat> I was in my own sin at one time and I needed people to be patient with me and walk a road with me and let me be in my messy place of being very far from the Lord and talking to me about ideas. They didn't give up on me as an individual, but they did try to bring a more excellent understanding of truth and reality to me. Um, and so we don't want to give up on people simply because they're complicated or entangled in a really um, bad ideology. So those are some of the things I've, I've been wrestling through. I don't know if you want to comment on any of that or not. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm just in probably, it's probably just a, you know, reflection of my sin. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit more quick to, to the draw with things uh, and being like, you know, no, I don't want people, I don't want to give up on a person. And at the same time, like, I might not be able to kick it with you. Like you upholding this narrative over here in this ideology, like we're going to have to realize that there's going to be a chasm between us at some point. And, you know, how I how I hold relationships is important because I, I always want to be able to shine the light of Christ. I always want to be able to um, have people understand that I am someone that that, you know, hey, if you want to have this conversation, we can have this conversation. And it's tricky in, you know, understanding that some people are going to walk away. Because while I while I want to remain open to you for conversation, my line is drawn. And so I think, you know, as we move forward in our nation and as a culture and in the church, in the church, we're going to have to really prepare our hearts to know that, you know, what you might see that people in your congregation are going to be on that side of the line and you're going to be on this side of the line. And that might leave you just you chilling with your goldfish and your puppy like this is but this is where we are and so yes i i kudo and say yes and amen to everything you're saying about being an invitation and understanding that people are not um you know that this is a, a definitely a uh that idea that ideas and people are not always the same thing and yet when when people hold the ideas now here i am face to face with you and so so i don't know personally i think for me sometimes i have to be like look we might just be on separate sides of this line and it's not to it's not to really um be a proponent of disunity in the church but it is to be a proponent of for clarity like we're in the church, we're going to have to have clarity and understand like 
honey, the door is open. If you want to have this conversation, the door is open. But my my line is clear. I have clarity around what the word of God says. But this is also why the word of God is important and understanding the word of God in context. This is why it's important. Um, I was going to read Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is truly our battle. Our battle is in the spirit realm. Know the person in front of it. They might hold the ideology. They might um, physically be the person that I am, you know, I'm, I'm seeing and, and having conversation with. But at the end of the day, all of this is a spiritual matter. This is all, um, you know, spiritual principalities in the high places. And so if we can keep that first, you know, that will, um, I think, give us insight in how to pray. And, you know, for me personally, I'm not saying anybody else needs to adopt this narrative. My holiness is definitely a work in progress, y'all. Um, it's difficult. And I think clarity will cause us to, at some point, draw a line in the sand. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I think that those the struggle for me is thinking back to lessons learned from 2020. Um, I think there's going to be increased pressure for pastors to um, soften positions around the gender conversation. I think there's going to be calls for pastors to, under the banner of being inclusive and, and loving our neighbor, you know, we're going to, uh, be called upon to um, not take such a hard line on on issues related to sex and and uh, that sort of thing. And I I guess I just want to encourage Christians and and our and our our Christian leaders uh, to start to think about like what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to um forego for the sake of God's word? How how much are you willing to stand on God's word? Um, because we are sh quickly shifting into, and we've been warning people about this for over three years now, um, that Christian Christianity will be collapsed into whiteness. And whiteness will be collapsed into Christianity. And so to decolonize our faith, to decolonize our culture is to basically extinguish historic Christianity. And so we're going to have to think about right now is the time to start thinking about what am I willing to lose? What am I willing to sacrifice? And to, if you need to, to get conviction on what does scripture teach? And then what are you going to stand on? I don't know that that's kind of what comes to me as a result of what you're saying. No, I think that's good. I, I think that's good. Um, you know, clarity is always, it's always important. And we get our clarity from the scriptures first. And yeah. so with that, you ready to wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. Let's, Let's do it. Yeah. And I think the final thought is just remember that um, a policy isn't going to fix this problem. A government policy uh, can only do so much to hold back either evil. Well, Christians, I really want to call you to is to begin to preach the gospel, to call people to faith, because that's what will change hearts and minds. We need to be more vigorous about 
preaching the gospel in our everyday lives. So with that, we will see people next week for a show that we haven't decided what it's going to be about yet. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. We are out. Have a great week. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.